0: And I suppose to some people, it probably seems almost contrite that we're talking about these women in terms of what made them successful and kind of almost seems a bit reductive that, you know, it's down to the idea uh, of motherhood and of, you know, this box ticking exercise. But it, it's true. Ultimately, these women were expected to fill fulfill certain roles.
1: I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the first series of our new podcast, Six Queens, where queenship reigns supreme. Now that we have introduced you to our queens, we thought it would be useful to introduce you to their job. So uh, all of our queens were what was known as a queen consort instead of different kinds of queens like uh, regents or regents.
0: So the reason it is kind of a good start point for us here to be able to kind of define the type of queenship our queens took on is because the idea of queenship um, can be something quite nebulous. And it's not altogether clear um, the role that we're talking about when we just say, oh, this, this person was a queen. Um, because there are very specific types of queenship. So as Kate just mentioned, all of uh, the wives of Henry VIII and um, our six lovely queens uh, did take on the role of queen consort. Now, what that means in sort of plain terms is it just refers to them being the wife of the reigning king. Um, so what they do effectively is they share their rank, their status, and they are anointed queens. However, they lack the kind of political and the military power of the king, or indeed uh, the political power of a queen regnant, um, which sits in direct contrast to um, our queens. So um, a queen regnant is someone who um, is queen in her own right. Um, And two very lovely examples that we have of this um, throughout the Tudor period is Queen Elizabeth I and Queen Mary I, who both had their own blood uh, claim to the throne. And another type of queenship that I think is important to mention, and it is, Something that we'll be coming back to uh, throughout today's episode and uh, later on um, as our series continue is the role of a queen region. Now this, this role wasn't necessarily um, as static as the other two, um, it was something that our queens could switch in and out of. So when we're referring to someone as a queen region, ultimately what that means is that she's ruling on someone's behalf. So whether that is um, her husband who is away or on behalf of her child before they reach their majority, so effectively, what that means is they are the equivalent of a king. So I just kind of thought it'd be worth touching upon before we really got into anything else, because um, it, it can get a little bit, um, the water can get a little bit muddy. So it's it's worth, um, you know, just from the out, just making sure that we're all on the same page when we're uh, talking about a queen. I
1: think it's very useful to know, too, just because it is ultimately the thing that all of these women have in common is the role that they took on. Um, or I should say the roles that they took on because not all of them were the same. But a queen consort of our period did have a very sort of set list of expectations. When you married the king and you became the queen consort, you were expected to do certain things, act a certain way, be a certain type of woman. And even though our queens did bring some personality and individuality to their roles, they were still all adhering to what was expected of them this was something that was passed down over time they came into this sort of knowing what their roles were but as we will see there were some chances for them to show a little bit of political power in their own way
0: ultimately I think what we'll
1: end up seeing is potentially
0: how fragile the role of the queen consort is because as Kate was saying there is a very set of specific roles that they had to adhere to and a very kind of strict set of ideals that were placed on them. However, if they were to reach out too far outside of those ideals one way or another, we will see how how that um, led to some of their downfalls.
1: The biggie in terms of a queen consort, so this is the thing that they kind of have to do to define themselves as successful, is producing heirs, preferably male heirs who can inherit their father's throne. This was the the big one. If you didn't do this, if you did not give the king a male heir, you weren't doing your job very well. And obviously, this is a theme that's very central to Tudor history, because we see this as the undoing of a few of Henry's wives. But if, if you do not do this, your your role as queen consort is in jeopardy, but also um, it's you're not fulfilled as a queen if you do not have children, specifically male children.
0: I mean, I always think of the inability to produce male heirs. I, d- I don't know about you, but for me, there's always three people that come to mind, which is naturally Catherine of Aragon and Boleyn but also to a certain extent Anne of Cleves, who, who not in the same way, failed to produce Henry a son, but. Because, you know, they weren't married for that long. But her fundamental lack of understanding about the the body and the role that 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 played as well, I think is quite interesting. And that idea of just the royal body and especially the Queen's body as being very public and very much up for a discussion. um, Because, you know, she held within her that potential for furthering the royal line is something that I don't necessarily feel like we talk about enough and it's something that is genuinely very interesting because it's almost
1: like a hot topic at court really it's sort of a hard concept for us to understand today but the way they saw it was that the queen in addition to sharing the king's status and maybe throne you know sitting beside him on the throne she was also an extension of his body And primarily that affected her womb, as in this is the vessel for the future of the monarchy. You are physically there to produce a child. So it is something that is seen as very public. But also, yeah, the queen doesn't own her own physical form. The king does. She is an extension of the king. So... You can't escape from that. And, you know, apologies to anyone um, who may have experienced things like this. I know we are getting into sensitive subjects for some people, but if you failed in that, if you had a miscarriage or if your child died even because of things that you couldn't control, that was it. And that was, you know, to play the devil's advocate, you weren't upholding your end of the bargain. You're a queen consort you are supposed to give Henry children. If you don't do that, you are not the queen. You are not successful.
0: Really, we see that keenness with Anne Boleyn. It's almost as though it was written into their marriage that she was, she had to provide Henry with a son. You know, that that kind of, get get rid of Catherine and I'll give you a son. He, she doesn't end up living up to that. And a few years later, he's like, well, I mean, I gave you a chance, but you're you're not giving me what I want. And he's almost as holding up his illegitimate son that he had a bit beforehand in the form of Henry Fitzroy, being like, I can do this. There's nothing wrong with me. It's all down to you. And, you know, ultimately, while modern science would sign on the favor of our Queens, you know, from what we know about him, he was never going to be prepared to think that anything could be possibly wrong with him. And I think his paranoia and idea that he was so obsessed with continuing his role line really, I think it would have taken a toll on anybody's body if you know, you're know you that stressed about giving <laughs> the king what he wants. It's going to do more harm than good.
1: Well, and Henry himself was the spare. He was the backup to his older brother, Arthur, who died. So he knew very well the importance of a queen who can provide multiple heirs to the throne. Uh, you You need to have the backup. So the fact that he didn't, I think yeah I mean on the one hand he has the paranoia because of course you need to further your dynasty that's that's a big one for him in terms of his job description as the king that's very on the mind but also it's a it's a pride thing he knows that all of these children are very fragile and it's a it's a tough world you could you could die anytime so he knew that he needed to show this strength, and his dynasty needed to be sound and strong, and the Queen's role was to help him to do that for him, and Catherine of Aragon and Boleyn especially, they did not, they didn't do that for him, and that was, that was a huge problem.
0: I suppose as well, he's, he's seen the stress that it caused to, you know, Henry VII, and that idea that he was stressed a lot of the time about, you know, at, at one point he had three sons that could potentially take the throne. And then by the time he dies, he's only got Henry. So I, I suppose it goes back to your point then about um, being that spare and that co- constantly living with that pressure of what if something happens to me? Like, what if something happens to this one child?
1: And that explains why Jane Seymour is later thought of as the quote, favourite wife, whether or not that has anything to do with actual love and affection is up for debate. What I interpret it as is that Jane is the most successful in that she was the only one of them who performed that duty. And I mean, we have a whole list of things that all the queen consorts should do in their tenure. But delivering a male child is the big one. And if you check that box, you're good to go. So Jane being the one who fulfilled that aspect of her role is that you know sort of cements her legacy she's the favorite wife because if we're talking about it like this she's the only successful one she's the only one who kind of upheld her end of the bargain.
0: It definitely uh, solidified um, somewhat beautifully actually um, in that Hampton Court painting Um, so you've got that idea of Henry Jane and Edward in the middle of this Kind of Tudor d- dynastic painting, and then Mary and Elizabeth off to the side, almost um, hidden away um, as though I but out they're kind of out of the main focus. And we just when you look at it um, kind of head on, you are ultimately drawn into those three at the center.
1: Jane also appears as Henry's consort in the Whitehall mural, which uh, doesn't exist anymore. We have copies of it, we have the cartoon of it, but um, it very clearly shows. Jane with Henry as his consort, you know, standing next to his parents. So he is seeing her as the successful one in the sense of in these dynastic paintings, you want to have the woman there who fulfilled her role and furthered the dynasty. And that was Jane. She was really the only one. We know that's not true because obviously Catherine of Aragon and um, Anne Boleyn gave us Mary and Elizabeth but in in their mindset it was Jane Seymour who was ultimately the the successful one and the favorite where there is room for further expression of personality maybe and personal interests and personal political motives is in another aspect of queenship which is patronage so this means queens promoting and giving favor to certain people in certain roles so the one that springs to mind most prominently is religious roles, and I think of Anne Boleyn especially um, promoting all of those reformed clerics. So she had a whole new set of chaplains. She promoted uh, Thomas Cranmer to uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was an extremely important political figure, and he pretty much owed his uh, political power to Anne and Anne's favor. Henry was the one who ultimately promoted him, yes, but Anne was the one who put him in the path so when you think about the queens expressing their their political side it's not it's not overt they're not ruling but they are influencing so this is a a place where we see it very heavily and then they're rewarded for it so I'm thinking of Cranmer um, being very loyal to Anne even when she was about to be executed you know telling Henry that he couldn't believe it
0: I, I, I'm I always happy to talk about patronage and kind of the idea of being able to see our queens as political players and as, as you said it, it's more that influence and that kind of soft whisper in the right ear that gets that, that furthers their aim and things like that. I think what is also interesting as well is the influence they had on culture and about how they were also kind of setting themselves up as the the centre of a royal court, um, especially a, a renaissance court, by championing artists and musicians and poets and really pushing that lifeblood back into court.
1: Yeah, so even if they're following these certain standards, should we say, they still have a little bit of room to make the role their own. And that's what patronage is really about. It's you connect a queen with certain things Uh, whether it's cultural or the political players that she promotes, but you also see the culture of court change in who is actually there. So if if you think about Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour, what's really interesting about them is that they bring their whole families and their families suddenly become powerful and they become members of the Privy Council for the King because their, their sister or daughter or niece is in this new position she brings this whole new sort of subsection to court and the other ones do too like you know um, when Catherine Parr marries Henry her her siblings get roles at court but not to the same sort of infamous extent as as the Boleyns and the Seymours.
0: I, I, a lot of the time like when I kind of think about that how much of that was potentially because the respective queen was angling for that? And how much of their personality do you see kind of coming out with that, that they wanted not only to benefit themselves, but their wider family?
1: We also see the, the physical spaces of court changing with the presence of the queen. So it's not only the, the kinds of people and the names of the people, but it's the uh, genders of the people. So for example, there cannot be women at court, I'm, I'm not like servants, but noble women at court, unless the queen is present. The queen sort of reigns over the female side of court. And it's not just theoretical, it, There's a physical side of court where all of the women exist, the queen's apartments. And whoever occupies the queen's apartments is in sort of this role of, she's in charge of the, the feminine aspects of court and her ladies are the noble noble ladies who inhabit the court and if there is no queen so I'm thinking of the time after Jane Seymour's death there are no ladies so it's a whole it's a whole sort of little world that the queen inhabits and is in control of in her own right.
0: Just hearing you talk about the physical space of court honestly my heart was so happy (laughs) honestly um that's a different, um, different story for a different day. But I, what I wanted to go back and touch upon is that idea that you mentioned about the queen's apartments itself, and the, I suppose the symbolism that goes along with that again, and with that 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 physical space. Those who are occupying it hold the keys <laughs> to Henry, and I, I think that's probably best expressed in what was it fifteen thirty one, where Anne Boleyn steps into Catherine of Aragon's old apartments after she vacated them. Um, somewhat forcibly, and the refusing to acknowledge that um, her marriage was invalid. While she herself wasn't the queen, it was sending a very clear symbol and a very clear signal of the events that were yet to come.
1: Another aspect of queenship that I think we should talk about, because it shows the religious side of the role, is charity. Because As you said, when the queen is crowned, she is anointed, which means she's brought into direct contact with God. It shows that she was a religious figure to a lot of people as well as a political figure. And one of the ways that she commonly expressed that was through charity, because the queen was meant to be seen as this very maternal, benevolent and pious woman, like the sort of ideal Christian woman, somebody that we all look up to. And so she would take part in um, charitable rituals, she would sew clothes for for poor people in need and show off, you know, her her piety and her benevolence in that way. We must
0: be seen to be doing something publicly good and kind of that idea for the, the benefit of the public. The religious, absolutely, them doing charity is for that religious aspect as well. But I don't think we can ignore the other side of it. Of it develops that public persona and it brings them into contact with the common, the common will and the ordinary people, because it allows them to kind of see the kind of person who is their queen.
1: Yeah, because all this other stuff we've been talking about, it does have the sort of trickle down effect where it will affect common people eventually. You know, but this was the real direct contact. So, yeah, as you said, this was their public persona. This was them building their PR sort of. And even if it was meant in a religious charitable way, which it certainly was, I'm not negating that, but it could also be used as a political tool in that it constructs your your public persona. So, yes, I don't think we should ignore that, but it is it's seen as a religious duty. But it can be spun for gain and image as well.
0: Yeah, And I think one of the clearest examples of that, at least to my mind, is with Anne Boleyn and with Cromwell. So, um, where the funds should be allocated um, for when the dissolution of the monastery started, um, Anne and Cromwell um, disagreed wholeheartedly about it and ultimately set themselves on a collision course with one another. Cromwell was looking to, you know, kind of further his political career. And develop his relationship with Henry and had very different ideas and again whether they were for you, you know actual personal reasons or again that political like that political and PR campaign it's, it's something we'll never know but she had the idea that it could be then put back into the charities and again ultimately benefiting um the public because you know she she did have a bit of a hard time cultivating that that image as as a good queen
1: this all sort of boils down into how it affects a queen's reputation, how she's viewed by not only the people at court, but by the whole kingdom as the leader of their kingdom. Because the more of these boxes you check, you know, have you produced an heir? Are you a cultural leader? Are you a religious figure? Are you benevolent to your subjects? It all matters because then when things happen, like say, the, um, the divorce of Catherine of Aragon and bringing Anne Boleyn in, people loved Catherine. I mean, she didn't necessarily fulfill her duty in that she didn't provide a male heir, but she had built that reputation. She had checked all of the other boxes and that counted for something. She had created this image for herself and she had constructed the ideal queenship just she she was lacking that one thing that happened to be the most important in the end. Now that we have gone through the role of a queen consort and we better understand what these women were expected to do once they became queen at the Tudor court, I think it's worth looking at all of the ways that they either fit their roles or didn't fit their roles and compared to other queens, what their legacy is, because it's they are interesting. They stand out. Like we're talking about them for a reason in this specific group they all stand out and they bring something different to the roles you know each of them respectively so I think let's talk about like what are what are unique about these queens why do we keep coming back to these women
0: I think probably the most obvious thing to say is that the sheer number of them
1: I mean there's six of them (laughs) that is that is different
0: (laughs) I mean while it you know, it wasn't uncommon for kings to remarry um, after their wife died. And when I say died, don't you know we're not talking chopping off their heads, <laughs> or uh, for their own purposes. Yeah, but natural causes. Cute and natural causes. You know, it wasn't uncommon for them to get remarried. So, you know, maybe in that sense, Anacles was the most traditional. You know, she followed someone that did die. <laughs> And I don't think we can ignore that. And I think the sheer fact that there are six of them and the sheer fact that they all appear within relative quick succession of one another is unique.
1: One thing that's always struck me about them in relation to other queens, specifically medieval queens, is that most of them are English. There are only two of them who are brought over as part of uh, an alliance or a a treaty of some kind. So Catherine of Aragon, who was the princess of Spain, who was brought over to solidify England and Spain's uh, friendship. And then later Anne of Cleves, who was brought over by Thomas Cromwell to make an alliance between England and another Protestant country. So... All the other ones really didn't bring anything to the table. I mean, they were from good English families, but not necessarily powerful ones. It was it was the marriages that made these families powerful.
0: I think that's interesting because I suppose, in a sense, that like having that idea of an a queen come from a good English family was a precedent that was set for Henry. You know, especially if we look at Henry the Seventh and Elizabeth of York,
1: but. Elizabeth of York, even if she was English and even if she came from, on one side, a family that wasn't high nobility, she was still a princess. She was still the daughter of a king and the daughter of an anointed queen. So to me, it's not as strong of a comparison. What is a strong comparison, though, is when Edward the fourth married Elizabeth Woodville because he was supposed to marry a foreign princess to strengthen his claim to the throne. And yet he fell in love with this English woman and caused a bit of a stir. And I think Henry does follow that precedent. So maybe not his father's, but his grandfather's precedent in that he didn't really think about the benefits for him other than he saw a hot girl that he wanted to marry whether or not she was actually a princess doesn't really matter.
0: Oh, there's a little part of me that loves the idea that uh, Henry is genetically predisposed to be a romantic.
1: (laughs) There are so few examples of a king of England marrying an English woman that I just think it's so funny that the majority of Henry's six queens are English. And I know that's because he was pulling from the court most of the time, you know, like Anne Boleyn was a lady-in-waiting of Catherine of Aragon. Jane Seymour was a lady-in-waiting of Anne Boleyn. Catherine Howard was a lady-in-waiting of Anne Cleves. He's clearly picking from a very specific pool. I just think it's interesting that his advisors didn't get the better of him the majority of the time and say, no, you, you should marry somebody who actually will benefit us in some way.
0: Maybe that's what we're missing, though. Maybe we should just become ladies in waiting. That's, what we're, we're not, that's why we're not marrying a king. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I suppose, again, it kind of partly speaks speaks to the makeup of the court, you know, with him pulling away or well, his, his advisors pulling away more from Europe and potentially looking more to home. I suppose in that sense, it, it does make sense. But you are right. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't marry up to that tradition of marrying
1: to further your political ends which further drives home the point that these queens are unique, not just because of this. This is just one factor. But like we were saying in in part one, you got to check these boxes. There are certain things you have to do to be considered a successful queen. Not all of Henry's wives, actually all of them, didn't check all of the boxes. You know, and being... A political player in in that you are a a foreign princess say and you're bringing an alliance to the table that's a really big box that the majority of them are missing Catherine of Aragon has it but she's not checked the motherhood box and Anne of Cleves didn't check that box either she didn't check a lot of the personality boxes either (laughs) so it's just interesting that you know ultimately none of them were quite there, in terms of yes, they did well, yes, they were successful yes, this is this is the ideal for a queen,,
0: I suppose it's probably worth asking the question in that case. Do you think that's why we go through so many of them because none of them one hundred per cent fit what was expected, and I don't just necessarily mean for Henry, but for those who surrounded him I mean someone always had a problem with the queen at the time.
1: That's absolutely a factor. I mean, we've already said that the the big one, motherhood, was what unmade two of them. And other other virtues, like, you know, virtue, and uh, in chastity and loyalty, unmade Catherine Howard. What I guess is different about it is that they could actually be unmade this time. A queen who went through these things or maybe didn't provide a male heir or um, maybe cheated on the king or whatever what they didn't necessarily have to fear for their lives
0: absolutely not and that is something that sets them apart because failing to produce an heir or as you said being too flirtatious Shouldn't shouldn't have cost some of their lives, and even by sixteenth century standards, people are like, "What's going on here? Like, this is absolutely mad." Who like who who's going to be next sort of thing? But then I I again I suppose that's where it kind of veers away from that more medieval tradition, um, and we see the court take on a life of its own. And I suppose really what we then have to take into account is that centralization of the court and that centralization of factionalism. Whereas previously, it's kind of been more spread out. Now we've got it all focusing on one place and it's a lot more of a dangerous place to be if you are seen to be stepping out of line.
1: What's interesting to me is just that you never, you don't really see this again anywhere else. I mean, you see specific instances of a queen being disliked and maybe fearing for her role, sure. But coming from her own husband, You don't, not really. So it's this idea of you not only have to do these things to build up a good reputation, your reputation could be the difference between life and death or at least, you know, staying queen or not. Anointing and becoming queen and going through the ritual of the coronation didn't necessarily mean a lot to Henry if you weren't willing to fulfill the role which is so unique. It's something that we don't see, again, at all.
0: The personality shift in Henry is quite interesting as well. Like, what are the lengths he's prepared to go to to kind of get rid of you? I mean, in a sense, with when we see the downfall of Catherine of Arra... No, pardon me, wrong Catherine. Catherine Howard and Anne Boleyn, Henry effectively takes on the role of the cuckold and is the cheated kind of husband, which to me is fascinating because it's presenting a very different public persona to the one he he's wanting to present normally of that that kind of masculine bravado and look at look at everything that I've got he's willing to take the hit of potentially being embarrassed on the international stage to get rid of someone who's displeased him.
1: And not just get rid of, because there were plenty of queens, you know, before the Tudors and after the Tudors who didn't get along with their husbands and were locked away, pretty much. I'm thinking (laughs) Eleanor of Aquitaine on one end and maybe Caroline of Brunswick on the other. It was just, (laughs) okay. I don't like you. Let's have a form of a legal separation and go to this castle where I don't have to look at you. Henry brought out the axe or I guess the sword in Anne Boleyn's case. He he needed that. Finality of you need to go. I need to get rid of you. That's just, I can't imagine the stress of, you know, you feel like you need to complete these things. You have to have a a child, a male child, for example, and not having one could mean your death. I cannot imagine that stress. It's not just about your reputation anymore, it's about saving your life,
0: which is
1: terrifying. And I think potentially a lovely place to leave it for today. Going forward, we are going to be talking about things a little bit more thematically. We'll have episodes that revolve around a certain point, many of them which we brought up here. It was, it was all we could do to contain ourselves to all that we just said. <laughs> So going forward, we are going to be looking at specific things about the queens. Uh, This was sort of our three part introduction. So hopefully now you're interested in what we have to tell you. And we can't wait to talk a lot more about our queens with you. I'm so ready to bring on the courtly culture stuff. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our new podcast. Be sure to stay tuned for the upcoming first series of Six Queens, coming soon. In the meantime, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, and read more about the Queens on our website. There you'll also find a full transcript of this episode, plus the resources we used to prepare for our conversation. Long live Queens!